It's a ticket to immortality. It's that ticket into a world where people who have not even been born in countries, societies, and cultures that have not even begun to think about know who you are. Those people will sing songs of your attributes and achievements in languages that have not even been invented yet. And that's no exaggeration. There are very, very few modern-day sports people who do not know the original tale of Marathon and the runner who collapsed after bringing the good news of the Athenian victory over the ancient Persian army. We know the names of some of the great gladiators and chariot racers in the ancient Colosseum of Imperial Rome. They carved out their immortality when the existence of our language, the words that we're communicating with today, English, was not even dreamed about for another thousand years. And it's an important concept to grasp because it's the motivation at the center of a criminal regime of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse of many modern-day top-level athletes that we're going to discuss in this episode of Crime Waves. It's the reason why so many of our very best put up with such appalling treatment. We're going to discuss this theme with a three-time Olympic gold medalist, a person who's dedicated her life to ensuring athletes are free from this form of criminal abuse. But be warned, it's a shocking tale. But if you're interested in sports, particularly if you're an athlete or a parent of an athlete, you need to know about this issue. Welcome to Crime Waves. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. This is Crime Waves. My name is Declan Hill, and along with my producers each week, and this week it's Eric Krebs, we explore issues of corruption, organized crime, and forensic science. And we do so by bringing you the primary voices, the people who are at the very center of an issue, investigation, or criminal case. And this week, we're honored to have Nancy Hogshead Maker the winner of the 2019 International Play the Game Award, and is the person who best represents the true values of sport. She's an Olympic athlete, a gold medal winner, and someone who has spent decades fighting to make sure all athletes, male and female, are free from abuse. Good morning, Nancy. Thank you so much for joining us on Crime Ways. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Look, let's just get cracking straight away. There is a quote that you're famous for. Uh, every year when I'm teaching my students, I, I, I mention it and it, it blows their mind. Your quote is, all coaches are not pedophiles, but every pedophile wants to be a coach. Now, what do you mean by that? <clears throat> um. First of all, again, thank you so much for having me on and, and, and introducing me to your tribe of people here. Um, the, it's an honor for us. Yeah. The, um, so what I mean by that is our, our particularly our Olympic system, meaning mm -hmm. sports that are not associated with schools, 
have very little oversight. And I should say in past tense, had very little oversight, meaning that a pedophile had lots of access to kids. They were not in situations where there was insurance or certification or um, there was there was no general counsel position, no president of a university, no, no nobody sort of on top of them or over them that was overseeing what it was that they were doing. <clears throat> and the official position of the United States Olympic Committee and the national governing bodies, meaning United States swimming, United States gymnastics, taekwondo, skiing, etc. Right, all the fifty different right. different national governing bodies. Their position was, we don't do anything about pedophiles. We let the police do that. We let the parents do that. We let the clubs do that. So nope. even if we know of a molester out there, we're not, we're as an official position, we're not going to do anything about it. Uh, draw, draw the difference for me between that bizarre position and a school board or a church or another position of responsibility for an adult over children. What, what, just, just draw that out for me in the sure, listeners. Sure, sure, sure. Well, so schools, uh, in order to be in a school, you have to A, have a background check. You have to be, if you want to teach, you've got to be certified. Um, you have a license. And you, if you do something wrong, like <laughs> have sex with your student, you will lose your certification and not be able to teach again anywhere else in the country. Um, if, but doesn't uh, that happen to a coach? No, I mean, a coach, sorry, what? No, no. For, co for coaches, particularly in the Olympic movement, they can walk off the street and, and go and be a coach. They have to have, there's, there's no certification. There's no background. You, you have to have certification to be a hairdresser, to groom dogs. You might hear some COVID puppies back here behind me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you, you have to have uh, certification for all kinds of things not to be a coach in the Olympic movement. And in fact, it was a real battle for us just to get basic background checks, meaning police background checks. And remember, police only catch a teeny tiny number of pedophiles that are out there. The police are actually not very good at addressing sexual abuse of children. Um, so, but even that, like even charging 35 bucks per coach was seen as too high a barrier, too much to spend um, to protect kids from abuse. I mean, right? So, the, the, I mean, that's, that's as basic a level no, as you get. No, this is important because, and let me ask you another basic question. I kind of think I know the answer. Probably most of my listeners do, but but let's ask this very basic question. Yeah. Are there a bunch of pedophiles coaching sports now? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So since, uh, so I started working on this in 2010. In 2017, finally, we got the United States Center for Safe Sports started. Since then, there have been over 4,000 reports of sexual abuse. In my sport of swimming alone, there have been over 250 coaches that have been banned. When you figure, they probably have, you know, between like five and 15 victims each. So yes, your, your risk of harm, most parents have no idea that when, they're, when their kid is in school sports, how protected they are. They have, there's insurance and the insurance carrier makes sure that, uh, that the school is adhering to certain guys because they don't want to pay money. Two is there's federal statutes that tell schools you have the responsibility to protect your students and your athletes from 
um, both pedophiles and otherwise, and they have assets. So they want to protect their assets. And so uh, they have all these layers on top of the coach to make sure that, um, that, that, that bad things are not happening. And if something does happen to make sure that they don't, are not likely to get rehired. None of that exists in the club movement. There was 10 years ago, no insurance. But usually the clubs didn't own their own facilities, so there's no asset to go after. So civil law, like as a, as a mechanism to, to make sports safer, really didn't exist. So um, essentially what you're saying, Nancy, is that if you're a parent and you're listening to this and you're bringing your child to a club, uh, you know, be it a baseball thing or hockey or gymnastics or whatever, right. you are taking a roll of a dice because there's very little compared to the school or compared to a church or compared to the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts or whatever. There's very little infrastructure that will is set up to protect the safety of your child. Correct. As uh, particularly ten years ago, there was there was not only was there no oversight, but th but that no oversight was intentional. That as we've been working to try to get these different layers, you know, duh, background checks, yes, um, yes. In, uh, insurance, um, or a hotline for an athlete, or something like that. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. All of yeah. you know. There's the numerous. The basics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Basic. They, what every child-serving organization should do, right? Right. Yeah. Um, uh, has has been a real battle, struggle, difficult. Not like what you would think of as like a duh. Yeah. I'll give you an example of something that just happened. Please. This happened yesterday. Right. So my coach from the 1984 Olympics is on the banned list for molesting my teammate at the time, Suzette Moran. Okay. Mitch Ivy, um, he's lit. You can Google him and find out, right? He is, he molested numerous young, young kids that he was training that were his athletes. And uh, two of his ex wives committed suicide. Um, me and my, my teammates, we like to describe him as this guy leaves like an, a wake of emotional upset behind him. And uh, so I get a, a, a thing from the Olympians Association that's saying, hey, here are all the swimmers that live in the state of Florida and you guys connect. And I'll be damned if Mitch Ivey was not on that list. So I said he was banned back in 2013. And the Alumni Association says we've never removed anybody. Well, maybe we should have this big omnibus bill and look at DWIs and look at blah, blah, blah. It's like this is a no brainer you're either going to have the, the, the pedophile feel comfortable being in this, in the Olympic movement, or you're going to have the victim feel comfortable being in the Olympic movement. It's a zero sum game. Pick a side. Because I, 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 don't, I don't understand this. And, and I think most of our listeners are not going to like, why, like this is really a dumb moment. A dumb why, moment. Why would you, if you're running a sports, if you're the American, you know, Olympic, committee why right. wouldn't you put this stuff in this is so basic oh declan here we go ready okay everybody's going to get a first year law uh a little mini exercise i'll do this as quickly as i can all right it's all about avoiding civil liability and it's about avoiding the responsibility that comes with civil liability right so but, meaning but this is basic this is like put a whistleblower <laughs> hotline in and 
and and do background checks on you know just require background checks. Why, why wouldn't this this be? Why? Okay, I'm gonna about to tell you. Ready? All right. Yeah, you're sending just just I'm for the people not watching this. Right, right. It, Nancy, you're waving your arms at me because you're just like like this seems so basic, <laughs> and I'm struggling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Please, it's please. all about do re me money. So, Declan. I've known you now for several years. Uh, I've known your work dealing with uh, what you're trying to do to be able to get uh, gambling money to be able to deal with the ethics of sports. Okay, yeah, we'll so get to I that in a you, second. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So I, I know you. You and I are going to go out outside right here. We're going to go across the street. And I know that it's uniquely dangerous out there. And I know that it, you don't know that it's uniquely dangerous out there. There's something about this intersection that is- Right. Okay. If we're going across this intersection, I know you and you end up getting hurt, you can't sue me because I don't owe you a legal duty. Okay, so okay. no duty of care. Right. Okay, the minute I start telling you, Declan, guess what? This intersection is dangerous. You better be careful. Right. Okay, and then you get hurt and I don't do it well then you can sue me because I have now assumed a duty of care for you. So yeah, but Nancy, get it now. Nancy, hang on, hang on. I get that point. So do all our listeners, but I'm not a nine-year-old gymnast. Uh -huh. I'm not a little kid. How can there not be a duty of care to a child in sports? <laughs> because they, they affirmatively chose this legal strategy to mm -hmm. save themselves money so that right now in and, court, and who is who is they by the way the, the united states olympic committee united states olympic and paralympic committee wow and all the sport governing bodies right now in court usa yes. gymnastics the united states olympic committee are arguing that they don't owe a duty of care for the nasser victims that it's not their job that okay he, yeah. his it, it's called his Criminal behavior broke the chain of proximate causation. We don't need to get into a, a, a big torts uh, lecture here, but 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 right. But that was an intentional strategy in order to save money for the back pocket of the administrator. I, I'm I'm clutching my head at this moment, and and let's I just know. take a let's let's just take a step back because there are yep. some people who may not know they're 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 listening to us from around the world who may not know the Larry Nasser case. And the Larry oh. Nasser, just a quick explanation, is the, the doctor for the national team, the United States national team of gymnastics, the ladies and guys that went off to the Olympics and the world championship. And he systematically abused hundreds of girls over decades. Correct. He's now in jail. He's been convicted. He's now being things. And, and I'm shaking my head as we're, as you and I, Nancy, are having this conversation, that anybody would not be saying, well, we really screwed that one up. How do we make sure that never happens again? Oh, no, the whole gymnastics community is very much, if go on Twitter, and there's a, it's called uh, um, uh, uh, Gymnastics United right now. It's a, a hashtag. But so no, the whole gymnastics community was like, look, we got Larry Nasser out of gymnastics. Let's continue on as though everything else is fine. They thought like the problem was the this one guy rather than a system that doesn't allow athletes to be able to complain. 
Okay, so, so, so step one is why did the sports system do that? But step two is what makes sports so dangerous is that the, um, the, both the sports culture and the sports governance system are set up so that the athlete is literally powerless. They are beholden to the national governing body and their coaches to be able to make the team. If they're not obedient and compliant, they do not make the Olympic team. Wow. I, I, I'm, I'm still struggling with the concept of somebody saying gymnast to United. United about what? I mean, you, you, you've had at the highest level of a sport a tolerance of systemic sexual abuse and and you're united like it 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 boggles my mind no no Look, wait, wait, no, no and, and maybe yeah, I didn't say that right yeah yeah no no gymnastics united is about the the gymnasts coming together and saying this is a very sick system Oh, so good. Okay, gym- I get it. Yeah, Thank yeah, you yeah, yeah. for so, clarifying so, that. Yeah, right, right. So to say, like, look, the issue is not just Larry, one person, Larry Nassar, or one rogue, unique coach, or like my coach, one Mitch Ivy. That's not it. It is a, instead, when I talk about um, every pedophile wants to be a coach, it is a whole system that doesn't allow athletes to have it's not just sexual abuse. Sexual abuse is one symptom of athletes having no power. So they have no money. Uh, Allie Reisman's mother said that for the most of her career, she got $500 a month, while Steve Penny is getting $600K a year. So she's getting $500, right? Sorry, who is Allie Reisman? Allie Reisman is the Olympic gold medalist for both 2012 and 2016 gymnasts. She's phenomenal. Okay. She like just obliterated the Olympic committee when she gave her NASA statement saying, you are ready to take credit for all of my accomplishments. But when I needed your help, did you come help me? No, you were not there. Were you there when, when all the gymnasts were there uh, in the courtroom and were making their statements. Was anybody there from the Olympic Committee? Was anybody there from USA Gymnastics? No. So, no, Allie Reisman is boss. She's, she has great energy, and she didn't need empowerment like in the, when we think of empowerment as like having courage. What she needed was power. What she needed was the ability to be able to speak up without losing her place on the team without uh um if 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 athletes have to be obedient and, yeah. mm-hmm. i'm sorry let me jump into this <laughs> there's a second group stage here because i really want to address this issue the systemic power of athletes because i think many of our listeners and myself before i got into exposing match fixing and organized crime in sport I had the perception that athletes were good looking in general, powerful young people, tremendous amounts of glamor. They were living a kind of literally an Olympian, you know, demigod like lifestyle. Please speak to my previous unknowing self. What is the life of an average athlete like? The life of an average athlete is uh, poor, right on the brink of, um, of, getting injured or sick. As soon as they got sick, injured, or pregnant, they lost their health insurance. If you're not covering sickness, injury, or pregnancy, what are you covering, right, with the Olympic Committee? 
Well, <clears throat> if you try to complain about, uh, we, we, we had one athlete who complained and said to another person, an employee of their national governing body, you're incompetent. And this athlete was on the board and they put up flyers all around saying that this guy was dangerous, that he didn't make other people feel safe. And they kicked him off the board um, because he told an employee that they were incompetent. Um, so so what, what is the life of an average athlete like? Um, other than, I mean, right, so you take the basic concept, no power. And then go from there. I mean, they they have very little autonomy. Um, Katie Ulander, uh, she's written well. She's a four-time amazing Olympian. Uh, she's a um, she's a sledder, <clears throat> winter a winter athlete. And um, so here she is making almost no money. I mean, she's oh my the poor thing and. You know, she doesn't come from money, and um, and if she brings her cell phone to dinner, she's fined two hundred and fifty dollars. So it's that kind of infantilizing that that gets done to athletes. Like they, so here, let me let me put it in stark relief. Okay, who's the goat of all time? Michael Phelps. Okay, the number one Olympian of all time. Um. When Michael Phelps got in trouble for uh, drunk driving, the whole Olympic world came crashing down on him. There was no punishment that was too much. They crushed the guy. They, uh, every way that he could have been uh, humiliated and, uh, and suspended, they did, okay? All right, let's take that comparison with the people that work for the Olympic Committee. And um, so Scott Blackman, who we know, knew about Larry Nasser and who deleted the email, did not help the girls whatsoever, did not tell Michigan State where Larry Nasser continued to work. He abused at least 50 more girls. And he gets a $2.4 million severance pay severance package when he leaves. Um, uh, same with Steve Penny, used to be head of USA Gymnastics. He knew all about it. He actively covered it up. Those of you who have seen Athlete A, if you've not seen Athlete A, I'm actually an expert in the case. I knew every fact going into it. And Athlete A is that that currently, it's a Netflix TV series that I recommend strongly if you're if you're interested in this, we'll have information on our website uh, on the podcast about this. Yeah. Nancy, I I want to I want to interject here and 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 underline something, because you're so habituated to this that yes. I think I I, <laughs> I want to kind of pull out the strings here because yeah. I asked you about the life of the average athlete. Oh and, yeah. And you're talking about how little power and that kind of precariousness they right. they, they have. But you mentioned some of the top athletes in the world. Like, like Michael Phelps and gold medal winners are, I mean, if they're in trouble, you know, what does it speak to the average NCAA athlete in field hockey or this or that, who, if they say the wrong thing or they wear the wrong dress or they don't wear a suit or whatever, 
can get pushed off the team. They can lose their scholarship. They can lose all kinds of stuff, and they're really in precariousness. Yeah, I think I think um, most athletes think that Michael Phelps would get treated like a god, right? So, so the the Olympic Committee like says like, how could you complain, Michael Phelps? You had a double bedroom yes. in the in the hall of in the uh, the um, in the um, Olympic Village. The Olympic Village. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. You, you had a double. You had more than. Any, do you know what kind of hotel accommodations that the Olympic Committee gives itself? I mean, no more I mean, basically, he got a double in a dorm room, okay? A dorm room. They are literally staying in five-star hotels, drinking the nicest champagne and eating literally caviar. I mean, for them to, okay, so Michael Phelps also has a phenomenal <clears throat> documentary out. In addition to Athlete A, which I really recommend, please go see The Weight of Gold that talks about the mental yes. health issues that yes. athletes have, okay? Yes. And Michael Both Phelps of those also, links, both of those links, by the way, will be on our webpage of the podcast because you're absolutely right, Nancy, that that mental health of the top athletes is extraordinary. Um, I, I, but but wait, let I, me just let me just wrap please, this up that that I that, that people think that that uh, that the very elite the reason why it's tough for me is because they have their reasons. I'm not good enough, or um, I'm not respected enough. They have some reason as to why it's hard for them in particular. And it, when when the athletes come together, what they grasp is that it's hard. And, the, and all of them are powerless, that this powerlessness is a feature of the system. It's not a bug. It's not a one-off. It is a feature of the system. And that in order to fix sexual abuse, you have to also fix financial abuse, and you have to fix basic athlete autonomy to treat these people as though um, that they are who they are, which is... Um, I don't know about you, but I watched the Olympics and I am just practically moved to tears. This is the best of what humanity has to offer. Yes. They're all doing something. They've got their 10,000 hours in and it yep. is ballet. It is gorgeous. It is competence. It is, it is beauty personified. It's the human I, spirit. It, it really oh. is. And, and, and it's, it, I, I often move to, to tears, not by the winners, uh -huh. but by something that happens, you know, somebody falls and one of the other athletes takes that moment to help up a competitor. Or mm. I still remember the Japanese marathon uh, female yeah. runner who was running with a broken leg and <sighs> she just wouldn't give up. And she finally, you know, thanks. Look, I, I, I just want to jump in because sure. you're so charismatic that, that, that we can get <laughs> swept away. And, and I'm, I'm a newly arrived immigrant in America. I'm a Canadian yeah. and I, and, and I, I want to stress that what we're speaking about today isn't particular to America. One of the strengths of this of my new country is that you guys talk about it. Mm. You say, this is a problem. I'm going to drop my gloves, as we say in Canada, and, mm. and I'm going to fight. I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to do this. But the same thing happens in many other countries around the world where many of our listeners will be listening about um, a couple of uh, weeks ago, you and I were corresponding about a Human Rights Watch report. Again, it's going to be on our podcast uh, website mm. about Japanese and Korean athletes, Japanese being particularly important because of the Tokyo Olympics coming up. Please tell us a little bit about that and the conditions that those researchers found in Japan. Sure. Well, uh, sparked by a couple of suicides 
Yes. Uh, the um, the 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 human Human Rights Watch and my friend Minky Wharton uh, went into Japan and did a numerous interviews and found that the the physical abuse, meaning beating, beating athletes, taking baseball bats, sticks to them, uh, slapping them. Bat? Yeah. Yeah. Baseball bat. Like yeah, hitting them hard was With a baseball a, bat. W- w- yeah what was a functional part of sport, right? In other words, everybody, it's, it's, it was as accepted for them as what I think, like how, the way that we weigh in young girls in particular in sport and how, um, how damaging that is. Um, like we all, like I, I've kind of got to, I'm going to have to spend a couple of minutes kind of explaining to you why that's so damaging as opposed to hitting people you really don't have to explain why that's damaging. With a baseball bat, like I, I'm, I, you know, when you say it's a functional part of sport, I'm like, <laughs> it, it does not sound in any way like a functional. And it drove some of these beautiful young people who are just trying to do their best. We're really putting right. on the line. It put, you know, it, it, they, they, they committed suicide. I, I strongly recommend Minky's work. She's a fantastic person. I want to share with you a story because um, the Michael Phelps um, uh, story reminded me of this. And then I want to talk about your incredible work before U.S. Congress. But let me just uh-huh. share this one story. It's about the sport that I'm passionate about, which is international soccer. Mm. And it's about one of the great teams from Africa, Nigeria, whose players are really, really good. Mm. And they turned up at one of the World Cups. And the World Cup is the world's um, biggest sports tournament. It even dwarfs the Olympics. It's like the Olympics meets the Super Bowl, and then you've got to times it by 10. The Nigerian government officials, normally uh, when you have a soccer team going to one of these tournaments, there's like 15, 20 masseuses, coaches, cooks, you know, managers, whatever, things. They had 157 of them. In fact, they had so many that they stayed at this five-star hotel and they realized they didn't have enough room. So what they did was they kicked the players out and they kept the five-star hotel for the government officials and, the, and their girlfriends and wives or whatever, and they booked in the players into a two-star, three-star hotel down the road beside a highway. That's the way. And I, I wish I, I could say that that was an exceptional and it was just Nigeria. But right. those kind of things happen constantly in the sports world. Right, right, right. I, so um, what, what, what makes athletes so susceptible to abuse is that um, they, as a, as a youngster, you can, you can get this experience of flow. You can get this experience of mastery that, that you can't get in other areas, right? It takes a long time to be a master of say mathematics or literature or, uh, you know, other areas. Pretty young kids can get the sense of physical empowerment and it feels so good um, what what makes kids be so susceptible to abuse is that what's being held out is immortality. That people are going to be talking about their exploits wow. for right. yeah for for time immemorial, right? So just like you were talking about the Japanese athlete who broke her leg and can right. So we're we're, we're talking about um, you know we're going to be talking about Michael Phelps forever. We're going to be talking about Ali Reisman forever and. And we talk about Jesse Owens and we talk about the guys in Chariots of Fire forever. And we talk about, you know, Dempsey, the great boxing champion. You're absolutely, it is the ticket to immortality. 
take it to immortality. Right. I remember being a youngster and going to Los Angeles and they had this huge wall of, uh, that was uh, marble and all the Olympic gold medalists had their names chiseled into the wall. And I wanted to be on that wall. So I, I know the hunger that comes with sort of having uh, immortality dangled in front of you. And we, that's- we're going to get into your personal background because people, if you don't know Nancy's background, it's extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. But before I do that, I want to, I want to talk about something that you've done right now, as opposed to those Olympic gold medals that you mm. won. Sure. You, you've done something almost unique. Um, it's 2020. It's an election year here in America. The whole country is divided between whether you like Trump, you hate Trump, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're this kind of Democrat, you're that kind of uh, Democrat, whatever. As of a few days ago, in front of the U.S. Senate, you and Senator Richard Blumenthal here of Connecticut got a bill passed unanimously. Do your happy dance, please. You're doing that now. And tell us about that bill and what it meant and how you were able to get all those different politicians together to agree. Well, if I can toot my own horn, this is actually the Please. second time that we've second time that we've done this. We've got the Protecting Young Children from Sexual Abuse and Safe Sport Authorization Act passed, signed by President Trump back in 2018. This is an extension of that. This is recognizing that you can't just have this layer of protection, which we did. We we gave in 2018 everybody in the Olympic movement has a legal duty to protect athletes from physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. Yay! So, and the bill does a number of other things. It creates the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, and they are sort of, they're not exactly a licensing agency. They're more like a a business's HR firm that uh, kicks out people who are, who are behaving badly. Yes. So, um, right, so, and that's where you get all the complaints and and, uh, whatnot. So they created this entity, kind of like the United States Center for Safe, or excuse me, kind of like a United States Anti-Doping Agency that um, uh, that 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 does the work that the Olympic Committee was uniquely bad at getting dopers out of sport. They are uniquely bad at getting sexual abusers out of sport, getting coaches, one of their own, somebody within their own ecosystem yes. out. So we cre- got that created. What this new bill does is it rejiggers the power dynamic between athletes and the organization. So rather than um, athletes only having uh, 20% of all committees and board members, they will now have a third. And they, um, the, it, gives, uh, it makes the U.S. Center for Safe Sport financially independent from the USOPC. The USOPC, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, has to give them tw- at least $20 million a year Yes. Um, right now, they're paying them, I don't know, I think it's like six, five or $6 million a year, which given that they're covering uh, 16 million athletes. And they've got uh, at least 4,000, as you were saying earlier in our interview, 4,000 active cases of potential sexual abuse across America, and you don't have all that many investigators. You needed correct. that budget. Yeah, right, triple, right, right. Yeah, at yeah, least. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So that's So it does that. Um, it does a number of things, but one of the main things that it does, um, Declan, that I hope you'll be uh, helpful with as we move forward is it creates a 16-person commission that will be tasked with rewriting the Sports Act. Um, the Sports Act uh, is a statute. I've been teaching sports law now for 20 years, and almost 
none of my students, I would say fewer than five, even knew that there was this thing called the Ted Stevens Olympic and Amateur Sports Act, right? That there was something uh, that governed the Olympic movement that was separate from, say, the NCAA is not governed by a statute. Um, so, um, uh, so, so th that was good for 1978, back in the world of amateurism, back in the world when there was not hundreds of millions of dollars in sponsorship and media money available. Um, it was good for back then, and we need to update it. So that 16-person commission will be meeting for 270 days, and it is in that work that when the, when the statute gets passed that we're, we're hoping for the kind of reforms that will uniquely give athletes more autonomy so that when that next dollar comes into the Olympic movement, athletes are part of deciding where does it go? Does it go to health insurance? Does it go to um, uh, a whistleblower uh, hotline? It, a hotline. Does it go to mental health like Michael Phelps wants? Does it go to... Yes to, um, you know, facilities, right? So where does it go? Does it, or does it go into the back pocket of uh, the administrators who are making seven figures? But at this moment, you and Senator Blumenthal were able to get people from all across the spectrum. Correct. And again, it's a, it's a really beautiful moment. It, it really speaks yeah. to the human spirit that you can have a Trumpian Republican, you have an anti-Trumpian Democrat, whoever, Saying, you know what, this is wrong. Let's get this together. Let me ask oh, you. Wait, wait, let me wait. ask you this question, Nancy. Sorry, but when you're dealing with the U.S. Congress, when you're dealing with those Congress people, what's the number one piece of advice you would give to the rest of us in terms of dealing with those people on an individual level? Collaboration, collaboration. Be a voice of helpfulness. Be give them more information. Right, we wrote them uh, legal memo after legal memo in order to be helpful. Uh, just as one example, the USOPC was tr it, during the uh, Pyeongchang, the Olympics that were in Korea. Yes, trying to convince uh, everybody that hey, it's not our job; we can't do anything about it. The Sports Act, you Congress haven't given us the power to be able to do anything about Larry Nasser and about USA Gymnastics. And we wrote this two-page memo, and we had over, gosh, I mean, a, you know, a hundred Olympians sign on to say that's hogwash. The law absolutely gives you not only the, the, the right to be able to regulate the national governing bodies, but also the responsibility, and you're supposed to do it. Right. Yes. So, so again, staffers, they don't know about what the statute requires, and they're not familiar with it. Right. So my number one piece of advice is we just kept hammering things like this home so that so that the staffers in particular the staffers are phenomenal um um there's too many for me to call out here but yes but 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 the staffers like so over so just and so we we, we did this this is over almost four years where we oh one by one by one here's an example i bet nobody here knows that um, table tennis had to was sued by 60 of its athletes trying to say they wanted objective criteria for making the team. So the coach wanted that right. They wanted to decide who made the team. And the athlete said, no, 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 we want, this is a win-loss game. So in swimming, it's first or second Olympic trials. One of the things that you got to see in the documentary, Athlete A, again, hope you'll see it, is that they manipulated the system 
so that athlete A, who is Maggie Nichols, did not make the Olympic team, even though she objectively was one of the top eight athletes who, okay, so, so uh, um, it doesn't rise to the level of Congress knowing about uh, pregnancy discrimination about sex discrimination, about uh, what's going on with the women athletes, the um, Equal Pay Act claims of the women soccer players. They, and and it, it was, we took it upon ourselves as volunteers, as 100%, how can we be value added to the Olympic movement? This is a unique property that unites the right and left, everybody can get behind our Olympic team and wants to support our Olympic team and so we we wanted to collaborate we were not dictatorial we kept giving them more and more information we gave press releases and we got um we got the olympic movement to be supportive of us so before us uh we we call ourselves team integrity the united states or uh, the committee to restore integrity to the usopc yes, um, and uh, before us there really was nowhere that somebody who wanted to, <clears throat> who wanted to complain, or or had a who uh, who knew that there were issues out there? There was no place for them to go. There was no spokesperson. So we have 500 Olympians, Paralympians, and elite athletes. 200 national level coaches. We have uh, 75 of the top sports leaders in the country. If you were in my world of like you know who's in the Olympic world and who are the survivors that are really out there on front making a difference, Rachel Den Hollander and um, gosh, so many others, the whole, the army of survivors, um, um, right? So we, we have, we got this huge group to, uh, to go in and, 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 and collaborate. I, I wanna step back now because you, you've, you've built an army of survivors. You built hundreds of current athletes you built hundreds of current sports officials who are genuinely trying to do the right thing. Right. Many of them were not, but but the people who were attracted to team integrity were tr trying to do the different things. You brought politicians, and again, you know, hats off to them. You know, right. to be a, a Trump supporter, to be a non-Trump supporter, whatever, to say to reach across that divide and do that. But that's now. You're at the peak of your career. You've won all kinds of awards. But let me start. Let, let me. Go back, because this, this ain't your first rodeo. And you work for decades alone trying to bring these issues out. You, long before the public knew about all the problems with Team USA and before all these issues and stuff. Tell us a little bit about your background, what gives you the fire to win the Olympic gold medals and all this and do this fight, please. Well, what, give me the, what gave me the fire to be an Olympian? Um, and... Yeah. To take that fire and, and, and spend the next few decades fighting for athletes. Um, yeah, I, um, so, um, there, there really is nothing like, um, the experience of being gifted at something. So I kind of got it and other people could see it. I, I was, um, I broke a national age group record when I was 12 years old and I was ranked number one in the world when I was 14. Um, so I had these, these competitive experiences of flow of, and, and that is like, 
you know, you'll keep doing just about anything to kind of get that, right? To go and have it, you, you just sort of feel this connection with God and this, um, this uh, feeling of um, like, I would feel like my whole body would explode. Like I, my whole, my body would be gone. I was only conscious of breathing and just these transcendent moments. Um, this is what I was put on this earth by that, the almighty to do. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so was, you know, really, really lucky. Um, I had, phenomenal coaches, particularly in the beginning. Uh, Randy Reese, we just raised a bunch of money to get him a pool named after him. Um, and uh, um, so I went to college and I was raped. I was out running. Duke has two campuses, east and west. And um, so this great big guy grabbed me, pulled me into the woods, and for two and a half hours was raped. I am unusually lucky to be alive. I really um, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to live to get out of there. Um, he made no, up until the very end, he made no, I mean, there was no hope that I was going to get out of there. Right. So, so, and, and, um, the hard part for me, believe it or not, was not being raped for two and a half hours. The hard part was having PTSD afterwards and not knowing who I was and not having control over my own emotions, not being able to sleep. I mean, nobody's good when they can't sleep, but having weird behaviors that I couldn't stop. This was back in 1981. We really didn't know that much about PTSD back then. And I, I had no role model of somebody saying, you're gonna recover, you're gonna be just fine. And God, for, for the grace of God, the most wonderful people at Duke University were supportive of me. And I recognize that but for Sue Waslick and Dean Wilson and uh, my coach, Bob Thompson at the time, um, that, I, I, that I would not be here, that they busted it for me. They, they went out of their way to make sure that I, that, so they didn't just believe that it happened, right? A lot of yes. people like, oh, you know, they have a hard time getting to sort of stage one. They believed in the depth of my emotional harm. And, um, so because I was, so they, they redshirted me. I didn't, I got to, uh, not compete at all. I kind of got to get a break from swimming. I got, um, they dropped two classes and I can kind of go on and on, but they really busted it for me. And as a result, I was able to go win three gold medals and one silver medal afterwards. Well, I always tell people, don't tell the stupid story that she got raped and then she went on to go win three gold medals because it wasn't this, um, it wasn't because I'm uniquely strong that I could do that. I was part of a community that loved me and nurtured me and uh, let me be weird and let me recover. Um, so that experience of having, um, having a community be surround me has uh, informed so much of my life as an attorney and even as an Olympian. Um, I'm going to say one more thing about when, when, when I went back to swimming, um, swimming, um, not only did it give me the gift of feeling that this sense of grace and connection, but also it was, it is a great place to heal. 
that by the, what everybody says in who, about PTSD is that hard, 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 hard physical labor helps calm the brain down, number one. Number two is there's a therapy technique, I didn't even know it existed, but where if you relive the, the experience, but this time I would have a machete and I would whack and I would slice and there would be like blood flying everywhere. <laughs> I would, right? And so I could re under the water while I was working so hard, I could use that anger that I had and that sadness and that emotion to go faster. So I could, at the same time I was healing, I was going faster, right? There right. was something very divine about the process. So I love sport. And I think it has this unique ability in our world to make kids better. There's abundant research to show that, that it makes kids uh, smarter. They're, they get more education. They're healthier for the rest of their lives. They, uh, and and, and um, economically, they make 8% more if they have a sports experience than if they don't. So we want to have more of them. And we want to make sure that those experiences are quality experiences that when we know that something interferes with that, like sexual abuse, we need to eliminate that. We need to get rid of that. So um, anyway, so that's like, where does the fire come from? Like I, um, I recognize how lucky I was to be um, raped in the way that I was, that I hadn't been drinking and that my, my, my rapist had no power. He was not, Bill Cosby or Weinstein or something like that. So um, back in 1981, I, right, people really could rush to be able to help me. I think every rape victim and every survivor of assault should get what I got. And if they did, we would be living in a literally different world if we loved people, if we believed that it happened in in the depth of their emotional harm and gave them the space to be able to recover if we did that for rape victims. So. The, the drive to ensure that this doesn't happen to any other athlete. And I, I really want to thank you um, both for, for sharing this and, and, and because there'll be many, many, many listeners um, who are identifying with us, who haven't had your... One in four. Uh, yeah. Yeah, who one are, in four saying, women, Thank one in... goodness one in somebody is saying that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's not uncommon at all. Like, it's shocking how common it is. Yeah, I, I, when, I'm, uh, when I'm talking about these issues in, in my class on sexual abuse um, in, in, in athletes, it's not unusual for students to come to me afterwards and, and talk about this, just to be able to create a safe space as you have done with safe sport yeah. to be able to discuss these issues. But what, what, wait, wait, and Declan, I just want to say, if you have students coming and talking to you about their experience afterwards, you're doing it right. If people feel uh, able to be vulnerable around you, that you're a safe person, you're doing it right. Because so many people, there's all this research saying that people don't tell. One of the most hardest parts of, of parenting was this recognition that every parent thinks their kid would tell them if something happened to them and the research shows they won't. So wow. yeah, no, if, if, if people are coming to you and disclosing, that is an enormous compliment to you. You, 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 
you know, I, I, I want to get to the 1990s when, when this field of fighting for athletes, fighting for non-exploitation, be it sexual, be it physical, be it psychological, was pretty lonely. This was not the kind of thing. I remember your Canadian equivalent, Laura Robinson, who's also yeah. a, a great, you know, a native indigenous and great athlete herself. She would do this stuff on um, all kinds of issues of abuse in hockey, uh, men's hockey in particular, um, and how lonely that was. Tell us a little bit about that, please. Those those nine, 1990s years, you know, after you finished being an amazingly successful Olympian, but you've got this background, and and and, and tell us a little bit about that, please. Well, I'll actually tell you a, well, a worse story in that. Um, um, so I started working on this in 2010. Um, I grew up professionally in an organization called the Women's Sports Foundation, and they mentored me. Donna Lopiano, when she was the executive director, was just, she used to give me assignments like when I was pregnant and it was midnight, right? She had, you know, right? But, but you know, when you've got somebody pushing you like that, right? It really makes you so much better. Um, and I was the vice president of the organization. I was the president of the organization. I was their legal advisor and I was their senior director of advocacy. So 30 years I was with them. I testified in Congress and I, you name it, I wrote books and articles and was on 60 Minutes and you name it, I did it. <clears throat> okay, so in, uh, in 2010, I went in their, um, their director of advocacy and I recognize that sexual abuse is this huge issue. So I start trying to work with Scott Blackman, who was the head of the Olympic Committee, to try to say, uh, this, is, this is really bad, and you need to be acting like a youth-serving organization that you are, and here are some basic things that you can put in place. And <clears throat> we were really making some strides. So we, um, we, we, probably the main thing I'm most proud of is during those years is we got, I had to go over Scott Blackman's head and I went to the board and I knew them to say, hey, you Olympic committee need to prohibit romantic and sexual relationships between coaches and athletes, regardless of age or consent throughout sport. So you need to have that very, because a lot of national governing bodies are not instituting this norm. Like that's so profoundly basic. So I went over Scott Blackman's head, went to the board, uh, um, uh, you know, mostly via email and phones, phone calls, and we were able to get that through. So in December of 2012, uh, we got this uh, rule passed that the Olympic Committee agreed that they would make sure that um, all national governing bodies prohibited romantic and sexual relationships with the athletes they coached regardless of age or consent. Okay, so I'm so proud of this. We are really making moves. And I'm continuing on. We're doing all the stuff. And then in 2014, are you ready? I got a contract renewal. And the contract renewal said that I would agree not to talk about sexual harassment or abuse in any context. Not in, not in cocktail parties, not in social media. Sorry, not, what? Uh, you got so, it. So hang on, you're the CEO. So we, we skipped over, by the way, you, you, you craftily didn't answer my question about the 1990s. You leapt forward to the apex of power. You're <laughs> at, you're at the, at that being, you know, and doing a good job defending mm -hmm. the rights of athletes to, mm -hmm. to not be abused specifically right. sexually with 
people of power. And then to get your contract renewed, you have to never discuss this. What's going on? They were willing to pay me 10 grand a month not to talk about sexual abuse. Why? Well, it's part, the, the, the foundation was part of the Olympic movement that required money from the Olympic committee to buy tickets to go to their dinner. That's how they funded everything that happened at the foundation. And um, Scott Blackman threatened to take that away if I, they didn't shut me up. So they listened and they tried. And then, okay, so duh, I'm not gonna sign that one. <laughs> but but hang on, just, just one second. Let, let, you know, the famous quote from Carnegie who says everyone has a price. Well, we know your price is north of 120,000 US dollars. If they're offering you $10,000 a month not to discuss something and you're like, guys, this is a no brainer. I'm not signing that contract. Yeah. Wow. No, I, it was, it was, uh, and they, I mean, this, this is really a, a step in that omerta, you know, that, that wall right. of silence. And I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, please. No, I know. I, I, I agree. It was omerta. Uh, it was, um, they, and, uh, um, um, I, at first I thought that there would just had to be some mistake. Like surely we, you, you don't understand what, what advances that we're making here. And there's a big difference between the advocacy department and then the CEO who was more like, you know, they're into, they need to sell sponsorships and tables and, you know, things like that. Right. So there's a, you know, there are different departments and I was head of our, um, our uh, advocacy department. And um, so I, I just thought, surely people just don't write. So I was writing memos and to have them kind of understand, no, no, no. They were dead serious. It took me a while to kind of figure out they were serious. So then um, they said, okay, if you want your severance, you have to agree to give us everything you've ever worked on and agree never to use it again. So the stuff I had worked on was on their website. You can go right now on their website and all the policies and the procedures and the everything, all the white papers and the, and the, you know, reactions to all these different stories. Um, it was this there. This is the cementing of the wall of silence, isn't it? This is just, it, 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 you know, to be able to shut somebody up who's as prominent as you with this massive amount of financial incentives is really a threat. Wow. Yeah, no, so I, obviously I, I didn't take that either. I walked away and I just started Champion Women and kept right on going. I wanted to get change to scale. So as a civil rights lawyer, I could be taking on individual cases and representing individual clients and getting the best that I possibly could for them. But in order to be able to make these systemic changes, you have to be working on a bigger plane than that, right? You've gotta be, um, um, you've gotta be changing the system instead of working within the system and getting blocked in all these different ways. So, so Champion Women, we take on projects that are designed to get change to scale. Um, we uh, recently did a, a, a um, we have a project running that Aaron Griffin, your student, was really involved with that had to do with um, looking at every single school in the United States. So NCAA, NAIA, junior colleges, and how were they complying with Title IX? We found that uh, overall, 
schools were denying women 183,000 opportunities to participate in sports because they're women. Women and were let, 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 Sorry, let me just jump in with some glossary here. Again, we got worldwide listeners. Oh, Title yeah. IX is essentially, and I'm, I'm shorthanding an, an incredibly complex and important issue, but it's essentially saying women are equal to men and deserve an equal opportunity. And this is part of the legislation here. So, and when you speak about schools in America, you're speaking about the top universities, Harvard, wherever, University of New Haven, down to high school, whatever. When you're saying that they're denying 100,000 opportunities, what, what, what does that mean? It, it means that if, so women are entitled to whatever the schools are giving the boys. Okay, so if, the, if, the, if they're giving the boys this amazing, um, uh, you know, caviar and lobster dinners, if they're giving them that kind of experience, then the women are entitled to that same kind of educational experience, that same kind of sports experience. Um, if, if women were getting what schools are providing men, they would be getting 183,000 more sports opportunities than what they're currently being provided because they're women. So we, we thought, I thought, as somebody who's, I wrote the book on Title IX, that, that uh, well, women's sports are increasing and that the gap was narrowing. No, 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 just the opposite. We found that actually the gap is growing, that the discrimination against women in sports is actually worse. And that, you know, we talked about how that the Olympic Committee is not interested in making sure that, um, that, that coaches are not abusing their athletes. The NCAA and the NAIA is not interested in making sure that schools are complying with Title IX. So because of that, the, there is one remedy, and that is 18 to 22-year-olds can sue their school. But most don't sue their school. You know why? Because that 183,000 women think that they didn't get to play college sports and think that they did not get a college scholarship because they weren't good enough. And that's not true. They didn't get it because they're being intentionally discriminated against. So we've created a database and Aaron was so good about helping us be able to write these letters to all the commissioners around the country to show them here's how each of your schools are doing and what are you going to do about it. Um, yeah, a huge project. We're only at like step two of 10 but we're hoping to be able to use some of this athlete activism to be able to get the, the guys, frankly, to be supportive of women in sports and use some of their platform, use some of their privilege and, and, um, and, um, um, and platform to be able to advocate on behalf of women in sports. In the midst of this appalling severance, you know, here's hundreds of thousands of dollars, now shut up and go away and, and don't mention this stuff again. You roll up your sleeves and you start this brand new organization. But what was, what was hard for me was not the money, um, although <laughs> I have three kids in private school, so yes, that would have been nice. But what was hard for me, honestly, was like losing a community. So I had been part of the Women's Sports Foundation pretty much longer than anybody else by that time on a continuous basis for every board meeting and every dinner and every, the only dinners that I didn't go to, they have a big award ceremony that honors the top individual and team athlete of the year. 
<clears throat> the only ones I didn't go to were for the birth of my children. Other than that, I was, I was there and I knew everybody there, right? It was like my team. This was my, so to lose that for me, that was profoundly excruciating. I was like, I'm getting kicked out of a community because I did my job because I was good at it because Again, I was making and, change. And it, it wasn't all that long ago. It was 2014. 2014. It's, it's not like 1992 or 1982 <laughs> or, you know, turn of the century. It was only a few years ago. Look, yeah. No, we, and, we, and we, then, and no, I think it's important because then uh, it was just a year later that Larry Nassar comes out. And so, um, right. So then all of the work that we, that I had been doing, thank, I just thank God a hundred times over that a, I didn't sign and B that I didn't give everything away because I had the blueprint of what the United States center for safe sport was supposed to look like. I wrote it. Um, I had all of these documents, uh, that, that forms the foundation of work to be able to move on. And, and we're going we're gonna to link to those documents because, again, Nancy, many of our listeners are from other countries that yeah. have, have very few countries have moved as far as the United States in terms of addressing these issues. And have, have, most countries in the world do not have something equivalent to safe sport. And they should. This is a basic. It's a dumb moment. So let, let, we're almost out of time here. So let me ask you this final question. And, and remember that we have people from Nigeria, from Japan, from South Africa, from Australia, from all around the world listening to this, as well as, of course, our American and Canadian listeners. Their parents or their athletes or their sports officials, and they've now listened to this and gone, wow, I, I had no idea that this – what is the one piece of advice that you would give them in terms of making sure they're protected or that their children are protected or that their sport is protected? What is the one piece of advice that I would give people around the world to, okay, I would make sure that there is, that they invest their energy and time into ensuring that there is a, a, uh, a well-established system for removing sexual abusers and physical and emotional abusers as well, but to remove them from sport. Because if you don't have a mechanism to be able to do that, then you're depending on CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, right? Or you're depending on you know, your local laws. Um, you have to have a mechanism for doing that. FIFA is doing it through, they have a human rights provision within embedded within FIFA, within the soccer international federation. Yeah, yeah. And um, similarly, like Minky Wharton at Human Rights Watch doing the same thing, right? Using the human rights uh, uh, model as a way to protect athletes. And what's uh, what I think is really great is that with Black Lives Matter, with athletes finding their voice, with the NCAA athletes, finding their voice and finding their power is that they are leading the way for these principles of human rights to be embedded throughout society. It will not just affect sports. When we get protections for athletes in sports, you better believe that's going to start applying to artists, to actors, to uh, all other areas where currently there are not protections. 
Nancy, um, I want to thank you for your time, both for your time this morning and also for the extraordinary work that you've done. Um, you. You, you were the play the game uh, winner, which is a, a prestigious international sports award last year. You deserved the, the award. And I, I just thank you so much for your courage and for this amazing work. Um, I know that there are athletes around the world that would join me in thanking you. Thank you, Declan. I appreciate it. I don't, I don't do it for that, but um, um, I, I know that um, I, I always sort of fall back on the powerful experience that sports is and anything we can do to make it bigger, better, greater, the better. So thank you again for having me on your show and giving me this opportunity um, to, uh, to explain the, the work that we do, because it does take a while. Hey, this is Declan. Uh, thank you so much for your time and attention to this interview. Many of you will be interested in Nancy's work, and you can get more information on the sites Champion Women and Safe Sports. Or if you go to this pod podcast website, www.crimewavespodcast.com, we'll put the links in there. And please, if you feel moved, do like and follow us on social media or subscribe to the podcast. Very, very much appreciated. We'll be back next week with another tale from one of the most courageous men in international sport, someone who risked everything to ensure that sport was protected from criminality. Please join us then. Take care.